Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of The FFS Show, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by The Ferret. I am your host, as always, Ali Bryan, and with me is the second of our rotating co-hosts, Karen Goodwin. How are you, Karen? I'm good, Ali. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. So for those of people who don't know everything about you, like obviously we do, could you explain a little bit about yourself, uh, your role at The Ferret and your very many areas of expertise? Well, I'm the co-editor at The Ferret. I've been here for a couple of years now. I write about social affairs and I'm really interested in issues like housing and homelessness, but also the experiences that, that fall out of that. But delighted to be here talking about the most glamorous topics of the day. Yeah, well, no topic in Scottish life is more glamorous than sewage. And as we were, t- as we were talking just before we came on, you did mention that you are a wild swimming enthusiast. Was that too strong a word? Well, I am quite old and I grew up in Ayrshire. <laughs> So I tend to just say swimming outdoors. But oh, right. Pre-Guardian. I'm pre-Guardian's wild right. swimmer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I swim in the sea and in lochs, even when it's cold. So we have a sort of uh, direct vested interest in what we're going to be talking about today um, because we are tackling a fact check about sewage and more specifically sewage overflows. Um you will have seen, if you've been following any of the news over the last couple of weeks, the controversy about beaches being basically made uh, off limits by sewage overflows in England and Wales. And we are looking into a fact check on that. But before we uh, tackle that topic, we have a, a wonderful interview coming up, don't we, Karen? I think it's a really interesting issue mm. by a professor who is looking at how you can really tell if someone is an expert or if they are just at it, frankly, yes. I think is, is the basic gist of her research. Exactly. So we're speaking to Professor Tora Tenbrink from uh, Bangor University. She's a professor of linguistics there and has done some really interesting research into, as Karen says, how you tell the difference between somebody who is a real expert on something or somebody who's just presenting what they say in a confident and engaging manner. Um, this is something that obviously has a massive uh, connection to what we do on this podcast, which is how people present false information, how misinformation spreads, the different proponents and vectors of misinformation around the internet. And a lot of that is to do with what reasons people believe in things for and what, how people take on information and how it's presented. So I think there's a lot of correlations between her research and what we uh, look into on this podcast. But before that, we've got a fact check to attend to. So let's get into it. So, Ali, you had a look last week at claims around sewage in England and Wales, didn't you? And there was pollution warnings that were put in place at 40 different beaches across England and Wales yeah. um, because there was untreated sewage on the beaches. Now, in Scotland, we're very proud of our water. It's part of our Scottish brand. Mm-hmm. So we possibly shouldn't be surprised that it was immediately claims online about Scottish water being a much higher quality and much cleaner yeah. than the beaches in England. So you had a look at that, right? Do you want to tell hmm. me a little bit about some of those claims that you looked at? Yes, I have. There was a, a number of claims online which were 
broadly contrasting situation in England to the situation in Scotland. Many saying that the sewage that was being had been dumped on beaches in England and Wales that was an like, that was their problem. Like it wasn't a problem in Scotland. The number of posts across social media with quite a significant reach. Um, so we basically had took a look into whether or not that was a problem in Scotland. And there was one part of some of the claims that they were right about, wasn't there? That that the situation in Scotland in terms of how our water systems work is mm. different. What did you look at there? Part of the contrast that was being made was that the water system in England and Wales was privatised and in Scotland is publicly owned. That's correct. Uh, water system in England and Wales has been privatised since 1989. Uh, that means that sewage and drinking water and all those things is uh, dealt with by different kind of limited companies in the different regions and regulated by an overarching body called Offwatt. That's the situation in England. In Wales, that was the situation, but now uh, water services are still privatized, but they're run by a single not-for-profit company. So it's a slightly different situation. And Scotland never privatized its water services at the same time and has maintained uh, a publicly owned company, Scottish Water, that's answerable to Scottish ministers. So it's never actually been privatized. And so what did you find about sewage in Scotland? And, and you know, what was some of the... The, why do we have these sewage overflows in the first place, whether in England or in Scotland? The situation that occurred uh, last week was a sort of mixture of uh, things coming together. But broadly speaking, the overflows were caused by massive amount of rain that was exacerbated by previously dry weather. So that means that sewers are in danger of overflowing. And that means if there aren't overflows, um, as in these specialist pipes that basically expel sewage from the system then the potential is that water overflows onto the streets it can get backed up in toilets and sinks etc that sort of thing so it's a safety system that kind of comes into place to stop water from overflowing into the streets and you know from from drains or into your uh toilets etc overflows in uh scotland and england are relatively common there were three hundred seventy-five thousand overflows last year in England. That's a lot more than there were in Scotland. A Freedom of Information request by the Ferret uh, found that there were over 12,000 overflows recorded by Scottish Water in 2020. But there is a slight difference in the way those two things are measured. And who monitors it? How are we monitoring it? And how do we find out if our local beach or um, river or loch is, is clean? Well, one of the problems there is in Scotland, whether across Scotland and England, but more in Scotland, is that there's a very a small proportion of these overflows are monitored in Scotland. Work by uh, journalists at the Ferret found out that only about 10% of the sewage overflows in Scotland are monitored, whereas about 80% are monitored in England. So that means 12,000 uh, overflows is likely to be a pretty significant understatement. So basically you found that Yes, there are sewage overflows happening in fairly large numbers here in Scotland. And yeah. not only that, it sounds likely that there's going to be, that's going to be a huge underestimate, right? That's basically exactly it, yeah. Tell me a little bit about monitoring of the water system in Scotland. Uh, there are, there's a, a number of different ways in which you can like, monitor the quality of water. When people think about how good is water quality between Scotland and England, people quite often think about drinking water, so the water that comes out of your taps. Broadly speaking, in recent comparable statistics, drinking water is, is kind of similar in quality in Scotland and England. 
You can also look at ecological status of water bodies. Part of this conversation which we're having now, part of the controversy that picked up was picked up online, was because there was this chart that was being reposted, a chart that had been put together by the Financial Times in 2019 that was kind of being posted alongside this conversation about sewage overflows and water quality, which was comparing the water cleanliness focused on the UK and showed that the water bodies uh, in Scotland were a, a much higher percentage than were achieving good ecological status compared to England and Wales. That chart is based on information from the European Environment Agency, which puts together these, um, every five or six years, they put together these big uh, reports on water quality all around Europe uh, on various different measures. And this is one of the measures, which is water bodies by area. So the area of Scotland's water bodies, um, how what proportion of that is in good ecological status. The, the reporting from that is, for, is quite old, from 2015, but the latest draft Scottish reports from 2021 says that Scotland's water quality generally has improved and Scotland's water bodies are broadly in better ecological condition than England's. So having looked at all these different sources and worked through them, Ali, what was the verdict that you came to? Our verdict on the claim that sewage overflows were a problem in England and not Scotland was not affected by those issues, we found that to be false because while Scotland's water on some measures is considered to be higher than England's, it's not accurate to say that Scotland doesn't have any problems with sewage being pumped into waterways. We know for a fact that sewage overflows do happen in Scotland. It's a feature of the sewage system. In Scotland, it's underreported relative to the UK. Hi, I'm Tora Tembring. I'm Professor of Linguistics at Bangor University in Wales. My focus is on cognition and communication and uh, how the two relate to each other. So basically, how do we put our thoughts into words? How do we get our thoughts across to other people using words? and how we can do research on all this. So I've developed a discourse analysis method called uh, cognitive discourse analysis. Um, this was published as a book by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Excellent. And the reason you sort of came into my orbit was uh, an article you recently wrote for The Conversation about how to tell if someone is an expert or just confidently presenting themselves in their argument. Um, this is something that is really interesting to us on this podcast. So the first question I'd like to ask is, what are the important elements of getting a point across effectively? This is basically about effective communication, which from my mm. point of view is mostly characterized by clarity and flexibility. Clarity means uh, avoiding mumbling, so good pronunciation, uh, right. using words that our interaction partner can understand, not using overly complex sentences, not, and not assuming too much previous knowledge. So in order to do that effectively, we need to be flexible. So that's the second point. We need to know our interaction partner. So who do we, are we talking to? What do they already know? What kinds of words should be used? So technical terminology yeah. or everyday language? Should we start from scratch or should we build on common ground? And also, uh, to get our points across effectively, we have a lot of ways of adding emphasis to our communication. So mm. when we speak, we can speak more forcefully when the point is important. We can repeat the message. We can take our time going into detail. Um, in writing, we can use uh, bold letters, exclamation marks, emojis, and that sort of thing. And we can spread our message in various ways that are appropriate and expected by the medium that we're using, for example, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. The best communicators are able to sort of tailor the way they speak to different media, different situations they're into. But from our perspective, the most important thing about our message and, and the most important things about, about uh, discourse on the internet is that it's accurate. But I'm sort of getting the impression that maybe that isn't one of the most important factors of communication and getting your point across successfully. 
So is accuracy important? Um, yeah, but that, that would depend upon uh, what, what's known by those who hear or read our message. If someone tells me a lot of rubbish, I will refuse to let them get their point across to me because I will just say that's, that's just rubbish. Yeah. But if they skillfully build on what I already know um, and, and sort of agree with me on that common ground and just take that a step further. So they tell me something new, something I didn't know, but that seems to tie in with what I already know. And it's all very mm. clear and seems to make sense based on what I already know. Then I may well buy it, even if it's inaccurate. But how do these people use like good presentation and confident speaking to spread misinformation around the internet, for example? So I think this really depends on whether spreading misinformation is purposeful or not. If people mm. themselves believe what they say or write on social media or wherever, and if they are confident and it's important to them, they are quite likely to be believable because they, they themselves mm. believe it. So confidence and importance are expressed in our discourse in various ways, and that will be picked up by whoever receives the message. So think of such words as definitely or always or absolutely yeah. or must and need, you know, all, all of these these little cues that tell us something is really important and, and we really believe in it and people uh, mm. put a lot of stress into words like that if people don't themselves believe what they say are right um, they might still use these same cues of confidence and importance for purposeful reasons so they use it strategically rather than because they themselves believe in it and for the readers readers or listeners it can be very hard to see whether this is genuine or just put on and of course, even if it is genuine confidence, it might still not be true. The person might believe in it, even if they don't have the relevant information. So they might be confidently spreading misinformation without even realizing it. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the big problem with misinformation spreading around the internet is it doesn't necessarily start from somebody who, is, who doesn't believe it. And also the people who are spreading it are quite often genuinely spreading it, having been taken in by the initial kind of vector of misinformation, then they're spreading all the way across the internet. One of the problems we have and readers of our site and people involved in any sort of discourse online is not being able to tell the difference between somebody who's got expertise and somebody who's just really confident. Could you explain a few of the ways in which you could tell between those two things? Yeah, so that's really the tricky point. So at first sight, mm. you can't. <laughs> so on the surface of language, the discourse can look really similar. So expertise is characterized by confidence and you'll see this reflected in the discourse. You'll hear that somebody is confident and that might be based on expertise. But the, the important point to keep in mind is that expertise is not the only reason for confidence. So we are often confident in our beliefs for all sorts of reasons, even if we are not experts. Our beliefs are built on a lot of things like personal experience, what we hear from friends or on our favorite media or social media channels, sometimes also just what we want to believe and so on. But when somebody confidently shares their beliefs, we are likely to believe them as well, because they sound like experts do. So as mm. the first point, it's important to realize that confidence is not necessarily a sign of expertise. So just keeping that in mind is a good starting point. Right. And then we can move on and ask ourselves, for example, how likely is it that this person is an expert? So what, what do we know about them? Do we know that they, they have done research on the area, that they have spent a lot of time uh, looking into that? Or do they just repeating what they've just heard? Uh, repeat what they just heard. Um, mm. Another question we can ask is, how does this person communicate in general? Because people do differ in their communicative styles and somebody just some people just sound very convincing all of the time, whereas others are perhaps a bit quieter and only speak up when they really have something important to say and when they really have the, the, the expertise to back it up. So people uh, are different in their styles and it's, it's sometimes really yeah. useful to look at that. 
And then uh, we can look at whether the person can is able to go into depth. Um, so if, if asked about more details, can they provide them? Or do they just have to sort of repeat the same message over again because they, they are just repeating what they've heard and they, they don't know anything else about it? Um, and then in some cases, it could just be the case that, that nobody could actually be very certain about the topic. So if somebody right. tells me very confidently that exactly a year from now on the 31st of August, 2023, uh, that it will be sunny, um, then I can only say, well, yeah. <laughs> what do you know? Um, yeah. So there are some topics that are inherently uncertain. So, so such as what exactly will happen in the future or what exactly happened in the distant past if there were no eyewitnesses. So there are theories and models for both with a lot of the detailed information to back them up, but there's always a limit to knowledge of this kind. So experts will acknowledge this and they will use appropriate language that clearly states what exactly the uncertainty is and what aspects we can be certain about. Mm. And the last point uh, I would like to make here is, is uh, we could ask whether they can, uh, the people who are talking to us, can they provide information flexibly? So if you only have a vague understanding of a topic, you might need to stick to a similar wording every time you talk about it because you right. or else you have to entirely sort of make it up. But if you're truly knowledgeable, uh, you'll be able to adjust how you talk about it, depending on who you talk to, what they already know and what kind of language they are comfortable with. Do you think that the kind of primacy of confident presentation over expertise and that being a, a difficult thing to overcome if you've got expertise, do you think that means that certain groups end up having more prominent voice. We've heard the enduring trope of things like mansplaining and overconfident men sharing their opinions without the, having the knowledge to back up. Do you think this leads to those groups being more prominently featured in media or more listened to because they just have a kind of confidence rather than an expertise? Absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think it happens all the time um, that we because we can't always look for the underlying evidence we will believe mm. what what comes across as most convincingly and with the, with this uh, image of or the trope of, of mansplaining it's really the image of a man talking down to a woman as as if she was unable to understand obvious things you know things like that do happen yeah. uh, and many people do experience it or are accused of it but of course it can also happen also happen the other way around it's not limited to a gender or anything like that um, but men and women do tend to have different communicative styles. There's quite a lot of research on this and it shows various effects. And sometimes this research is contradictory. So the jury's still out and I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't really want to, to spread any stereotypes here. So, um, but, but what I will say is, is that it's very clear that these things change a lot over time with, um, women's voices becoming more and more heard and therefore uh, as a reinforcing uh, effect they are also becoming more confident so if you think back 100 years or so women didn't really have much of a voice at all I mean, they weren't even allowed to vote so yeah. so now we are uh, also increasingly uh, recognizing further voices that haven't been heard much so indigenous voices minority voices mm. and hopefully also quieter voices, although that's really difficult because uh, we are uh, with all these loud voices shouting all around us. It's um, one has to make an effort to, to, to make sure that, you know, uh, people who, who don't normally speak up will actually be heard. Do you think that experts, do they have a, a sort of presentational issue when trying to compete with people that are just confident? Is that something that experts and academics struggle from in trying to communicate simply what their point is? 
the more the more you know about the subject, the more you're actually aware of the uncertainties and the complex answers. Mm. So simplicity is, is really a challenge for experts uh, because so whatever you say, so much of what experts say will need to be left out. But I, I do think that's really the sort of skill that we need uh, in order that we have really effective scientific communication with the general public, but particularly in, in, in times of, of uncertainty and, and change and, and various challenges globally. So we need the skill to put what we know into messages that everyone can understand and that builds on the knowledge that people have and that are accurate enough at this level of detail. For for instance, let's just think about climate change for a moment. So scientists yeah. will be hesitant to say that one specific extreme weather event is due to climate change, because that that's not yeah. not, not sort of the, the the kind of relation that that can be uh, uh, evidenced uh, in that sense. But uh, at a different level of, of of detail, they might say, which is accurate enough, that the overall increase in extreme weather events across the globe is linked to climate change. So at that level, it's accurate. So it's it's always about finding a level that works and that gets the point across in a simple way without introducing in inaccuracy. So finding such a level also means the same flexibility that is always needed for effective mm. communication. So um, that also means that two communication can never be one-sided. Scientists also need, need to listen and to be aware of who they're talking to, what these people, so the readers or listeners believe, what they already know, what they want to know, what they need. So that's that's not easy at all, particularly not if you're sort of talking to a wider audience because people will be very diverse in their previous beliefs. So that's why it so often goes wrong and uh, confident non-experts win if they are skilled communicators. So that's all we've got time for for this episode of the FFS show. Thanks again, Professor Tenbrink, for the interview. So Karen, have you enjoyed your inaugural co-hosting experience on the FFS show? I've enjoyed it, Ali. Thanks for having me. And I hope to come back on again if you will allow it. Yes, definitely. And remember, if you want to uh, send us a fact check that we think we should be looking at, you can go to our community forum, uh, newly established community.theferret.scot and go to the story ideas section and you can send us claims for review or story ideas for the ferret generally. Uh, or you can email me directly, factcheck at theferret.scot or uh, get us on Twitter, at Ferret Scott, or search for The Ferret on Facebook. So many different ways you can get us across all of the different social platforms. Okay, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new fact check, and a brand new guest, and maybe a brand new co-host. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Everything at the FFS show is movable, changeable, <laughs> ephemeral. It's kind of like first dates. Ali's just kind of working through us all to yeah. see who he likes best. And yeah. then we might get a second one. We're kind of just basically living tender hoops here at the Ferret team. Yeah, if you don't see these people again, then that tells you a story of how it went. <laughs> see you next time. Bye. Bye.